A good morning to each of you and greetings in Jesus name. The word, the living word, the word that was made flesh. Is your hope in him? What do you think of when you see a rainbow? A promise. Last Saturday morning, I was in the broccoli patch trying to get ready for market and look to the west and there's a rainbow and not often the west, but there was one there briefly. And it's something beautiful. And I often think of the promise. That's what it's there for. Several weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 40 in the message as a glimpse of a picture of who God is setting the stage to help us understand a little bit more study on on how he interacts with with us as his creation as his people and the covenants that he has made I'd like to look at a few of the covenants that God has has made with man, expanding on that. But just in in brief summary, as we looked at Isaiah 40, a few of the, the points there, as we looked at who God is, is related in that passage. One was the exactness of his work in creation and how, how precise God is. How much he understands about that how infinitely, intricately he worked. Another point was the preeminence of his holiness or the degree by which he is set apart from any other being or entity. And closely following that is the uniqueness of God's being. Another point would be God's interest or involvement in the affairs of the world. And we talk about meeting here for prayer. Concerning the election, is that something God cares about? We don't know what all God thinks about all that, but we do know he is interested and he has a plan. Also, we see in that passage God's vast, unmeasurable knowledge about every every facet of life that we can imagine and many that we probably And lastly, God's personal care for people. Those are all points that come out of that passage as we are drawn to worship God, our God, Jehovah. And the covenants that we will look at, the covenants of God are are means by which His will is, is conveyed or His purposes are made known. Sometimes the covenants are specified as a covenant Sometimes the purposes are declared and sometimes they're not really. Sometimes a response is required from man and sometimes not. The first covenant that we have recorded, and it's not specifically called a covenant, and yet it's God's setting out his will. And that's in very early in Scripture, in Genesis 1. Let's turn there. Genesis 1, reading verses 26 to 31. 
And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. We have here some instructions from God to man. And God created man with a purpose. And the purpose stated here is dominion. We often hear of, well, man has to have dominion. And here it is. Let them have dominion over, and it lists specifically, the animal kingdom. In verse 28, we have that directive. And it, it's, it's not just the dominion, it was to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth and subdue it. And yet he was to have dominion as a created being. Think about that. All the creation was there, all the animals, all the different things. And then God said, I want this part of my creation to have dominion. After the creation of man, God called the creation very good. And we, we know that, that man was different and that he was created in the image of God and in his likeness. And therefore, he had some qualifications to exercise dominion. In a sense... This created man, Adam, was perfect. And he was to have, as we would read here, dominion over all the rest of creation. Total dominion. It seems that that was God's intent for man. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 15. Some more aspects of God's plan. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The first requirement here was work. Would you have thought of that as a requirement and a purpose for man at creation? This was before the fall. It wasn't the result of the fall. Everything that, that man, that Adam here, Adam and Eve needed for life was there in the garden, but they were given the instruction to dress and keep the garden. Maybe this goes partly to being created in the image of God and God worked. And he said, man, I want you to work. You have a job. There is necessity in work. And that nature of that work changed following the fall. I think the work here was fairly pleasurable. I don't think Adam was sweating as he dressed and kept the garden. It was a pleasurable. 
They say, if you do what you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. Well, I guess that's the kind of work Adam had. There was another requirement, and that was in verse 17, to refrain from eating from one tree in the garden. Why did God put that there? It was a test, a test of faithfulness, a test. We don't know what all was in God's mind as he put that there. And yet, could it be that this test was needed to prove the faithfulness of man in creation as he was to exercise dominion? And the sentence here stated is death. But this this test is man going to be faithful in exercising dominion and doing what I have called him to do and the other the other parts of what I've required and requested here we see this covenant that's list that's we've kind of looked at here in these chapters reiterated in Psalm 8 and we know that fairly well I'd like us to just I'll stand and say that together Psalm 8 and we will repeat a part of this this covenant or command that God stated. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea. And whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Thank you. You may be seated. Considering the greatness of God, that he created man and then that he put him in dominion. Do we have dominion? Has man exercised that dominion? What all does that mean? And I don't claim to understand this all, but as I've studied, I found some very interesting things that I hope will be beneficial to to us as we look at. We think of man having dominion. Let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Speaking of the ministry of Christ, and it actually is quoting Psalm 8, beginning at verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, and crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the quote. 
And it continues, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So that covenant has not yet fully been fulfilled, that intent of God to put all things under man. You see that? Not everything is yet put under man. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So it it's, goes on to explain more of the, the work of Christ in his suffering and death and what the purpose of that was. But we see a little key of this concept of dominion being held for Christ as a man. But we aren't given quite the whole picture here. And a little bit more light is shed on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We, we saw there in Genesis that man failed the test. Now, now hear this here in 1 Corinthians 15. Follow along if you care to. In verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, the fall, by man came also the resurrection of the dead in Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So we see there that Christ rectified what Adam failed in. He proved himself faithful as a man. Verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I don't know what the implications of all this are, but I found this very intriguing to follow this train, this trace this path, this, this thought of dominion, ultimate dominion, being placed there before Adam. He failed. We see Christ living that perfect life. And then we see here that Christ is the one that will carry out the Father's plan, the purpose of ultimate dominion. So God said, have dominion. And He is making a way, He has made a way through Christ, a man, that He can fulfill that ultimately, in the end. Some of the workings of God that help us to understand a little bit 
of, of how things work. And some of these early covenants, purposes stated, can give a basis. They aren't that tremendously enlightening in a way, and yet they help to establish how God is working. The second covenant that we see is in Genesis 3. We had that first covenant and God's requirement there of faithfulness, which was broken. So in Genesis chapter 3, God sets forth another covenant or another statement of intent. Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. God here made a pronouncement against each of the ones involved here in the fall. And therein he bound himself to provide a way of redemption and restoration and judgment. It's interesting to note that the serpent was cursed and the ground was cursed. But it doesn't say that Adam and Eve were cursed. But as we think of this in, in verse 15, and you know, it's something that perhaps we don't, I know for myself, it's kind of hard earlier in, in my experience to understand you know, what, what is this saying and why didn't God make it more clear and yet, I think there's things that we don't understand fully in, in the, the way the Scriptures were written in the context that maybe it's a little more clear. The, I think one different wording in, in a number of translations is the word bruise thy head is actually crush. Uh, some of those things, we don't maybe see quite the clear picture of what is being said here, but God is saying, I will judge evil and I will provide redemption. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we have a verse that I find interesting in relating to this, and that is, He that committed a sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So there we have a purpose in, in Christ's coming to fulfill that promise here of God to bring salvation and to judge the serpent, this covenant of redemption. I'll say there's another verse in study that I, I found very interesting as well, and that's in Romans 16, verse 20. I could not have said that this was there. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That I see is that ultimate redemption, is it not? It's a time coming when that redemption will be complete. You know, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved eternally, completely. Satan will be totally vanquished and crushed. So we have that promise. We have that covenant of God, his statement. The next covenant is the covenant. Some have called it the covenant of preservation. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. There's a lot that can be looked at in different angles in the background to this covenant. And I'm not going to be but so thorough on that. But here we'll, we'll see the conditions of mankind as a result of the fall and God's, God's perspective and how he was going to deal with it. How he chose to and did. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the earth, on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. A picture of corruption, of, of depravity, sin abounding. The word here in, in verse 6 and again in verse 7, repented or repenteth. Was God sorry that he made man? I find it interesting that the word here, the Hebrew word, is to sigh or to breathe strongly. In many other places in Scripture, that word is translated comfort, as in, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Well, think about it. When you sit down at the supper table after a hard day and you just go, ah. Or the children just dump the toys out for the fourth time. You go, ah. Right? They both are to sigh heavily. Or to sigh, to breathe heavily. I think that's... That's the idea here that and how you can have that same word, that same idea mean two different things. But here God, man, whom he created, he called him very good. He had a purpose and here he was, totally corrupt. And he just, what am I going to do with these people? See that here. He sighed. He repented. Not in that he went back on what he'd done, but it, it grieved him. 
It grieved him at his heart. It says in a world full of immorality, wicked acts and wicked thoughts. And continuing down in verse 11, it says the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And the Lord looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And the Lord said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. As a just God, judgment will be rendered for sin. God had said the wages of sin. He had told them, if you eat, you will die. And here God had had enough. It says here that all flesh was filled with, was corrupted and the earth was filled with violence. It was a, it was a horrible picture. The violence, the imagination of the heart were evil continually. You, you just see a, an engulfing picture of evil, sin. One little point that I, I found, that is in verse 2, it says that these sons of God saw the daughters of men and they took them wives of all which they chose. Well, what did God say in, in Genesis 24? A man is to have his wife, right? And here it, it implies that there was much marrying going on contrary to what we believe God one man and one woman. So there's one aspect of this. God seeing this picture of corruption. But we also see the mercy of God coupled with his justice. We skipped over two verses here that I want to go back and read and those are verses 8 and 9. So against that picture of of God being grieved at his heart. Verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. So while God would destroy the wicked from the earth, he would preserve the righteous man Noah and his family. That's what God had decided he would do, and he gave in, in Genesis 6, Continuing there, verses 14 to 22. I'm not going to read all that, but God gave him the instructions. How to build the ark. And I will read verse 18. It says, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark. And in verse 22, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So your God declared his intentions to bring destruction and he carried them out exactly. You think of the God that we read about in Isaiah 40. The wisdom, the power, the knowledge, the holiness. And we see that God's character demands judgment, but he is merciful. And he knew how to bring all that together here. In God, in the, the flood we saw in, in Genesis, in this chapter 6, verse 7, his declaration that he would destroy man. And in seven, chapter 7 now, verses 21 to 23, And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground. 
both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Going now to chapter 8, we have God's directives to Noah. In the meantime there, it talks about his landing and, and uh, waiting. Time of probably continued testing and, and thoughts that, is God still here? Does God know? In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And God remembered Noah. Going down to verse 15, we have God's directives to Noah and this covenant he referenced earlier there in chapter 6, I will establish my covenant. And here it's fleshed out a bit. Genesis 8, verse 15. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the fate, creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Just pause there to say, that's part of the covenant. That's part of God's statement of, of intent, His promise. And I have to think, I have to think about that fairly, fairly often. And I don't know, I made reference to it to someone this several days ago. We plant seeds. Why do we plant seeds? Because we know that the growing season is there. We know that it's going to be spring and then summer and then fall and then winter. Do you ever think about just how basic that is? But how much, how necessary that is and how God has spoken that it will be and we know that. Continuing in verse nine, chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the seas. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as I have given, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by blood shall this, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and his sons, saying, And I... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl and of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. 
and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for patience. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And all the waters, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. God here says, I establish this covenant. And in this covenant, we see several things that are changed in the man related to the world around him. There was a marked change in the relationship of man and animal. It been interesting to know what the earth was like before that. But here it says that animals will be have fear and dread of men. They will be wild. Not only that, meat was to now be part of the diet. And yet it's very interesting here how God pulled out and said, you shall not eat blood. Blood is sacred. There's to be respect for blood. And that is continued down through history. And in the Old Testament, with the sacrifices for atonement, the blood was, was held in high esteem. Do you hold blood in high esteem? Especially perfect blood. The blood that washes us whiter than snow. Further here, there is a respect for blood in that it is life, in the sanctity of life. Man here is given the responsibility to require justice for bloodshed. There, this was a way for, for order to be kept in society and to, to foster that respect for life, for human life. We don't know what it was like before the flood, but if you look at how corrupt things were, very likely there were no restraints. Or at least to the degree that God very specifically says here, the blood of your lives will I require. If a man kills another man, he, he is to his blood is to be held accountable. Things that changed here. God also vowed to restrain himself from another worldwide judgment by flood. His mercy and long suffering extend to the end of time, he says. As long as the earth remains. Things are going to keep on. But that doesn't mean that the world will, will go on indefinitely. We know that. We see that iterated in Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. Okay. It's using that whereby 
to set up for another, another statement. But the heavens and the earth, which are now kept by, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The word that created the world, the world that the word, the power of the word that brought the flood, is the same power that's keeping all things going. And that same word, the surety of God's promise is, is being, will be demonstrated in, etern- in, in the judgment that is to come. Verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's a call. A way. Similar to what Noah was preaching. You know, there, I couldn't find the, the reference, but there's reference to Noah being a preacher and of a, preached for, we say about a hundred years, right? The ark was in building. God was not willing that any should perish at that point either. And he pled with man to repent through Noah. It says here, God is not willing that any should perish. What are we going to do? Are we, are we examining our own lives and hearts? Verse 13, Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long suffering of our God of our Lord is salvation. So, in this covenant, God demonstrated his justice and his mercy, and he said that mercy will go on until the end of time. And then beyond that, we have a picture of salvation of the righteous. God will preserve the righteous, and I think that that is a number of times in Psalms referenced, the righteous being preserved, being upheld. It follows in this covenant. God set this rainbow as a reminder to both himself and us. It says when I see it, I'll remember. And when you see it, you remember that I'm faithful. And the part there of of the world never being destroyed by flood has nothing to do with man's part. But it it confirms or affirms the understanding that, as Ephesians 1 says, that God worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. So as you back up and you look at, at these covenants, you see that God knows everything. You see the holiness of God. God is holy. God is just. 
He required judgment on sin. He is all-powerful. He is also merciful and long-suffering and faithful. That's how God works with man. And I trust that as you think of these things and you worship our Creator and our Sustainer, our Redeemer, that you would thank Him for His goodness, for His workings with us, and that as we looked at these things, you would be drawn to see God anew a little bit, I did, as, as that one that is overall and working and is carrying out His purposes because this is the beginning of God's working in God's covenants. And it fleshes out in ways that, that, are, that are a lot more intricate and intense and detailed that have ramifications for us that we are so grateful for. Some of those at another point. But I just pray that each of you would rejoice in the faithfulness of God and take to heart, as I think we do very frequently, but those words there in, in Peter about Knowing these things, what does it do to our hearts? We daily bring our hearts before God and we endeavor to, to, to have them clean and pure and without spot and blameless. That's your view. Let's have a song.